from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Listen, if any of y'all had told me that all I needed to do was add a video on the day that I drop an episode or a picture, I would have been skeptical. But I am blown away about the outpouring of support and the number of clicks and impressions that we received in just the past week. It certainly smashes any previous uh, premieres, especially season one, which was mostly just me sitting in my hotel room in Vienna during the VIS. Nevertheless, welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal, the show where practice meets personality. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. And this week, dear listeners, we're jumping right into it. Last week, we had a great conversation with Claudia Solomon, the incoming president of the ICC Court of Arbitration. And this week, we talk to the outgoing ICC Court president, Alexi Moore. Alexi is a fascinating individual who, like many of us, found himself in the right place at the right time in the midst of his legal practice and decided to take the plunge into the world of international arbitration. And eventually, that led him to being the president of the ICC court. One of his signature achievements and something I asked him about during the interview were his contributions to the ICC rules by way of some of the key features of the expedited procedure. For some context, these ideas were not necessarily, they just simply weren't, the most popular ideas at the time. And they've come to be some of the key bells and whistles of the ICC rules process with them receiving some additional attention in the most recent update. So, enough setup. I think you'll enjoy this conversation, seeing another unique path into the field and some perspective of someone in one of the most interesting positions in the arbitral community. So, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Alexi Moore, and we'll wrap up on the other side. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, we already started off season three with a bang. Last week, you will have heard a conversation with Miss Claudia Solomon. Well, this week, we keep the good times rolling and we bring to you an exciting and fun interview with one, the only, um, the predecessor to Miss Solomon, Mr. Alexi Moore. Alexi, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be with you. Yes, thank you so much for being here, Alexi. And so, um, as we do every week, the first question that we have is, who are you, where are you from, and what do the people need to know? Well, nobody being perfect, I'm French. Uh, (laughs) From Paris, I'm, as you said, the president of the uh, current president for three more months. Uh, of the uh, ICC, the National Court of Arbitration. I'm a lawyer, uh, independent arbitrator as well. Uh, and I guess that's it. Well, that's great. And, you know, I have the sneaking suspicion here that that, that those that know you, Alexi, might say that that is a very brief answer for what has been a, a, a long and storied career. So French, France, where did you grow up in France? Where's home? In Paris. In Paris, okay. 
And did you always know that you wanted to, to go to law school and be a lawyer or, or what led you down that path? No, 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 no. I, I want to do many other things when I was young. You know, when you were 15, you, you, you want to do many, many things that you're never able to achieve. And uh, so I became a lawyer went to law school. And uh, one, once I went there, I, I, I started to like law and I, I became wanting to be a lawyer. I, at the time, I was uh, at university, quite heavily involved in politics as well. Uh, but uh, I think law worked out better than politics for me. Sure. And what university did you go to? Uh, first, uh, Nantes, Paris 10, Nantes, and then Panthéon-Sorbonne. Okay. Very interesting. And so there are many lawyers that end up in law school that don't necessarily end up pursuing international careers or certainly international arbitration careers. What ended you or what led you to the international career? And then in particular, what led you to the world of international arbitration? Well, you know, it, it was a bit by, uh, by, by chance in, in the sense that I, I created my firm, my own law firm quite, quite early in the day that was back in 1992. I was uh, 29 at the time. Uh, that was a uh, very general practice, business law, general practice, uh, small, small boutique at the time, uh, pretty much involved in, uh, in Franco-Italian uh, relationship. My, my, my partner at the time was, uh, was Italian. Uh, so that's what we did. Uh, and the firm grew. And uh, as it grew, we started getting cases, some of these cases happen to be arbitration, so that, that's how I, I started to arbitration. I think the first arbitration case we received uh, was back in 1995 or four, I think, uh, around these years. I liked that very much. Uh, and at some point, I think in around 1997, 98, I decided to focus on arbitration and doing this. Wow, so that's interesting. Uh, I had uh, I had written quite a lot on private international law matters, conflicts of law, conflicts of jurisdictions, treaties, where matters in which I had uh, had interest for for many years before. Sure. Any particular sector in private international law? Any sort of particular industry? Was it kind of just really very broad in general? No, it was it was very much uh, focused on conflicts of jurisdiction, conflicts of law, conflicts of jurisdiction, essentially. Okay. And, and so, all right, so we're in the mid, trending towards the late 90s. You're starting to get more and more interested in arbitration. Um, I wonder <laughs> your perspective. I mean, now some 20, um, almost 25 years later, I mean, what, what are some of the, the big stark differences that stand out in your mind from back then versus now? From what perspective? From... from from the practitioner of an arbitration um, lawyer, someone that's uh, a day-to-day -day person that's doing arbitration. Um, I wonder. Uh, how, yeah. How was the practice of arbitration involved? That, that's your question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, if you go back 25 years, uh, at the end of the 90s, it, it was, I think, quite a different world. Arbitration has always been arbitration. At the time, it was a much, much narrower community, much less diverse. Uh, the pool of institutions was also much more narrow. Uh, so when I when I got in, you you still had this uh, very small pool of uh, um, grand old men. Uh, of course, uh, now now it's it's a very different ballgame. Uh, there are many many questions that have 
that have come on the top of the agenda of practitioners of institutions which did not exist at the time. Uh, I think the perspective uh, to uh, questions of uh, uh, impartiality was, was quite different as well. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I would say, arbitration now is a much more sophisticated and, and diverse uh, business than, than it was 25 years ago. Well, sure, I think that that makes sense. And I guess that tracks with um, the sort of evolution sort of framework, right? That it was a lot more narrow, less diverse, all of those types of things. And now, as more people have entered the field, so to speak, um, you've had uh, more access to arbitration and um, it is a lot more commonplace for, for practitioners. Um, so I think, so that takes us through the, the end of the 90s. For your career professionally, what then came next? Or what, what's the, uh, I, I'd like to take the listeners, I guess, on the, the journey from, you know, Alexi Moore, the uh, council to then eventually being at the ICC. Well, I started, I mean, I, I started developing a practice council now operations. Uh, at, at some point, I, I, I started getting some uh, some appointments, as, as everybody does, uh, initially by, by, by institution. The ICC has been my, my first uh, appointing institution, uh, and I like that. And the more I advanced in the, in the practice and the more I wanted to, uh, uh, to focus on that, and uh, I guess that uh, things built up uh, quite spontane spontaneously and I started be becoming perceived as, a, as an operator and, and that's how we got there. Got it. And, and I guess, you know, uh, d diving straight into it, I guess, a little bit. What was the point where, as you've just said, uh, you're developing this reputation as an arbitrator, you're um, sitting for some cases, you're working as counsel, that you then say, or then it occurs to you, that perhaps you'll apply to be the president of the court of ICC. I mean, what what was the sequence of events that led to that, or the thought process? Well, that's a decision I made in uh, in, nine, in sorry, 2014. Uh, so we're quite uh, advanced in time, uh, and I made that decision because, first of all, I I always liked the ICC. I think that I was fascinated by the ICC. The ICC is a fantastic institution. We may, we may discuss that further, and uh, I really saw uh, the president of the court as as being someone who could really, and in fact, uh, uh, that's the case, uh, could really influence uh, the practical operation, uh, not only ICC operation, but beyond. Uh, also, the idea of uh, presiding and leading a large institution was something that was very appealing to me. As I said, I, I always had uh, some interest in uh, associations and, and politics, and, and that was uh, also a way to go back to this. Um, I was also at a point in my life and career where I felt that I, uh, I wanted to experience a change. Uh, because perhaps I started getting bored by what I did and uh, I wanted to, and you know, when you have that kind, I felt that I had the opportunity to, uh, to try it and uh, that I had a chance to be, uh, to be elected and, uh, you go for it. And when you have the opportunity to do something new, well, either you, you don't do it because you don't want to change or you, you try it and you want to experience and, uh, and feel the adventure and that, that's, that's what motivated me to, uh, to run and I was elected uh, at the end of uh, 2014, it was, 
uh, and I started uh, as a president uh, on the 1st of July of uh, 2015. Well, right. And, you know, I, I guess I imagine, right, that there was, you know, I guess what I'm what I'm thinking out loud about is what would have been the backup plan if you hadn't <laughs> if you hadn't been elected to this position, if you weren't the to be the ICC court president, what would you have done instead? Or how do you imagine uh, things might have been different? Well, I think that I would have um, at that point, I would have left my the firm in which uh, which which I founded at the time and created a new one. Sure. Uh, for reasons, uh, because the firm was uh, a general practice firm doing arbitration, uh, I felt that this uh, started to raise a number of problems. Uh, so, if I hadn't been elected president of court, I would have uh, uh, started a new adventure by creating uh, an arbitration boutique. Sure, sure, as one does, right? <laughs> um, uh, I, I think. I think that, that that's really interesting. And I think that in particular, as you shifted into that role, I would be curious to hear what does a day in the life of a president of the president of the ICC court look like? Um, I imagine each day is probably unique and has its own challenges and benefits and all of those types of things. Uh, what, can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> good days and bad days. <laughs> Uh, you have days in which uh, you have lots of problems coming to you and uh, days which are great because days go well. But I think that uh, it has been, uh, for me, a fantastic experience, not only professionally, but, but, but from, uh, from uh, the human perspective. I, I've been really privileged to work here with, with, uh, with great people uh, for whom I have uh, the highest respect. I mean, the people who work here, particularly in the Secretary of the Court, are really outstanding people. Working for them has been a privilege. And I think that I've learned a lot on, uh, not only on arbitration, but on, on people. Uh, uh, and uh, it's really been, it's, it's, it has really been an honor and a privilege to, to work with them. So that has made, I would say, every day a good day in spite of the, uh, the numerous uh, problems and headaches that you have in that position. Well, sure. And, and, you know, one of the unique things that, that kind of, I guess, is tied to that is kind of maintaining your professional sort of career and profile outside of, you know, your position and your reputation within the role. What what was that like? I mean, I imagine that that's quite a delicate juggling act, you know, minding that you won't always be the president of the court. I mean, what has it been like to sort of maintain both of those things at the same time? Well, when you're the president of the court, I mean, at least I did not do any more council work. I maintain my arbitrary practice. Uh, of course, you cannot be involved in any ICC arbitration at all. Sure. Uh, so I had to on for my ICC cases like uh, Claudia had to do. And uh, but you can you can continue sitting in uh, in in, in ICC cases. I started to do a lot of investment arbitration. For example, I see a lot of mixture cases and central ISDS cases, but also other institutions and other cases. Uh, of course, you have to balance your time because because the uh, requires a lot of attention. Uh, required uh, pre-COVID lots of, uh, of traveling, uh, also. Uh, so you, you you need to measure the number of cases that you can that you can accept. Uh, but I think it's very important for the president of court to the president of court is not an employee of the ICC. The president of court is a consultant. 
and that's very important for the independence and integrity of the court. And as, as an independent consultant, it can uh, maintain an activity uh, practice as, as a material. I think that's very important. That's, it would be very, very negative, I would say, for, for the ICC to have a president uh, who would be uh, completely cut off or separated from, uh, from practice. Uh, sitting as an arbitrary is fundamental for this role. Oh, sure, and I, I think that that's true. And, and one of the things that I know that whether it's, uh, you know, anyone at the ICC at any level, but I think also you as well, is um, sort of uh, being active at conferences and speaking at different events. Um, one of the things or, or one event that I, I saw that you've made some comments about recently um, was speaking on the topic of sort of this growing trend between internationalism and the global trend sort of nationalism. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that. And for our listeners that may have missed your comments on that recently, um, I'd be curious, one, to get your thoughts on that. And I'd like to kind of think through or talk about maybe how an international organization like the ICC sort of walks that, threads that needle, so to speak. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a very uh, a large and complex question. Sure, I understand. It with lots of talking, but what I would say on this is certainly in the past 10 to 15 years, there have been two phenomena which I see as as different phenomena. One is not necessarily linked to the other, or uh, to be more precise, uh, uh, one does not uh, um, uh, stem from the other. The first one is is is. Uh, a process of what I call regionalization of, of institutional arbitration. There's been a, a, a very, very important and impressive trend of uh, emergence and growth of regional institutions, uh, domestic institutions, and that is a direct consequence of the fact that the arbitration community has uh, has become much more diverse than it was before. I mean, uh, uh, 20 years ago, it was essentially uh, Euro-North America-centric. Uh, now it's much more diverse. Of course, the emergence of Asia is, uh, is a major phenomenon, uh, but also in other continents, uh, for example, Africa and others, you have the emergence of local arbitrage communities. That means that you have the emergence of, of new institutions, and those new institutions, of course, uh, uh, tend to uh, uh, compete uh, on, on a local or regional basis. Uh, there is also an expectation, which I think is a positive phenomenon on the part of the use of other, my, my friend father Solomon, that's not like the term uses, but I, I can find a better one uh, of businesses uh, and, and, uh, and legal communities uh, worldwide. They, they expect institutions to be closer to them. Uh, at the time when uh, uh, the ICC could uh, rain uh, from Paris, and uh, that, 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 that is over. Uh, people in, uh, in Dubai, in Singapore, in Sao Paulo, they expect to see us on the ground. They expect us to uh, administer cases on the ground, and they expect, that they expect us to be closer to them. Uh, and that, of course, uh, uh, obliges an institution like the ICC, which, which is a global one, to be, to be more local, to become more uh, local, as I'm saying. Which, which, uh, as you may understand, is is a challenge uh, for for an institution like the ICC. But all this is positive because I think all this brings uh, a new dynamism, uh, brings force to arbitration uh, as a as a global system of justice, 
it, uh, it introduces more competition, but all this is good. There is another phenomenon which is less positive, which is uh, uh, a certain resurgence of what I call arbitral nationalism uh, or protectionism, which is less positive, of course. Uh, you see in some uh, jurisdictions uh, regulations coming in uh, aimed at protecting uh, local communities, ex excluding foreign arbitrators. Uh, last example of this is a draft law which has been presented to Congress of Peru, uh, which I, I have reacted on uh, in, in, in the press. But there have been other examples uh, of that. Uh, Russia is one, and then there are many others. You also see uh, some tendencies which I see as regressive cultural tendencies in arbitration, which is uh, in certain parts of the community a tendency to move away from the transnational global culture that has all addressed arbitration. I mean, arbitration is arbitration because it is global, because it is it shares common values across the globe. Uh, you are in Kuala Lumpur, or you are in San Paulo, or you are in Moscow, you share common values and you share a common way of doing things. Uh, there have been, uh, since in the past 10 years, some reactions to this, some saying that uh, uh, this uh, is a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, format of procedure, which is not good for oppression. There have been attempts to, uh, uh, some saying that uh, uh, it is not good to erase uh, local judicial traditions. You see uh, things like uh, the so-called flag rules uh, purporting to compete uh, 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 against the, the IBA rules on evidence. Uh, I, I, I view this, uh, this trend globally as, as a regressive one. As a regressive one because I think that uh, going back to local tradition, to uh, uh, local ways of doing things, which mean to ways of doing this in court, uh, turning our back on what has been the, the, the great progress of arbitration in the past 20 or 30 years, which is precisely this globalization, this, uh, uh, this creation of a common body of rules and practice, I think this will do no good to arbitration. So you have these two tendencies, uh, one, one good and the other one more negative. Also. Yeah, sure. And uh, well, appreciating that that is, uh, I served you up sort of a um, a loaded and uh, probably too big sized question. You did a really good job of sort of capturing that down into a, a bite-sized package. Um, I guess the question that kind of stems for me from that, that thought process, Alexi, is that if you're talking to, if you're talking to the, the average counsel on the ground in a jurisdiction that's maybe just starting to develop an arbitration practice, I, I wonder what, the, the the pitch to that council sort of looks like. I mean, you know, they're seeing, they've heard all these things about how the international arbitration model sort of looks and works, but as you've said, they're also starting to see the sort of shifting sands of this regressive trend. In your mind, what do you think is sort of the biggest argument as to why they should pull to the, what the rule has been before this regressive trend rather than following uh, the re regress? Well, I, I think anyone at least from my, that's my view, uh, the way I see it, a a anyone approaching arbitration wanting to understand arbitration uh, should understand that arbitration is, is a global system of justice. Arbitration is international. Arbitration is, is the justice of international trade law. And the beauty of arbitration is that it solves a very practical problem for businesses, which is if, if a Korean uh, business has a dispute with a uh, Californian business, 
Are they going to speak the same language in court? Are they, are they going to have a, a, a level playing field? Uh, are they going to present their case in the same way, in a way which is understandable by everyone? Are counsel going to be subject to the same rules? Or are we going, like in court, to quarrel on conflicts of laws, on uh, which rules is applicable to what, on uh, in my country I do this like this, and in your country you do this like this, et cetera, et cetera. Which, which and uh, the question of legal privilege is a very good example of that which, uh, of course, uh, takes away the whole advantage of arbitration. The arbitration, of course, has the advantage of no convention, the rules are enforceable, uh, 168 uh, uh, number of countries. Yes, but arbitration has another advantage, and that, that advantage is that it gets everybody to speak the same language, to act and, 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 and advocate in, in a way which is understandable by the other. And that, that's fundamental. If you take that away, then you you sure so it kind of creates this sort of as you just said global nexus or meeting point for all these different legal jurisdictions and theories to sort of at least they might disagree on a lot of different things but they at least come to this same meeting point or intersection and then sort of try to get to the right answer from there they speak the same language with the same words they have the same tools and of course they disagree on the substance but at least at least there is a common ground which is which is that they, they, they present their case before arbitrators from different jurisdictions. They are from different jurisdictions. They have their own legal culture, but they speak the, the same language before the arbitrator form. Yeah, sure. Um, and well, so we're talking about speaking, speaking the same language. Um, I can tell you one place where people are not speaking the same language, and this is actually a matter of more procedure than substance. And this is kind of this idea, something that was a... I suppose a, a pretty major change under your watch and something that you were one of the innovators of um, is this idea of how the ICC rules treated expedited procedures or the sort of heralding of expedited procedures at large. Um, critics at the time might have seen it as sort of taking away the party's rights to appoint the arbitrators and that no one would accept these changes. But some years later, it turns out the exact opposite seems to be the case. You know, we, the users, um, seem to really be a fan. Um, I'd like to unpack that a little bit. What was going through your mind or what did, what opportunity did you see in sort of thinking through this change um, of sort of the current version of expedited procedure that exists under the ICC rules and what kind of led you there? Well, the, the, I mean, when I came, when I came in uh, as a court, um, I, I, I saw one thing. First of all, and, and that thing is that the ICC is an institution uh, which has now a case load of, of about 1,600 uh, cases. Uh, average value in dispute is on top of one $140 million per case, so it's much, much on top of that of any other institutions. 40% uh, of these 1,600 uh, uh, cases uh, have uh, amounts in dispute of less than uh, four million dollars. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, uh, polarized pool of cases. You have cases in billions of dollars, and you have a very, very significant. Uh, in fact, almost half of our caseload involving what I would define by, by ICC standards are as as, uh, uh, as small cases without, without, of course, any any negative uh, context to that. Now, what, what, what you see when you come in that position is that these cases are dealt with in exactly the same manner. 
the, the administration of case under the ICC rules is the same for a case where you have a $10 billion claim and a case when you have the $10,000, which, which by, by any economic standards does not, does not make sense. There is another thing, which is uh, that the, uh, clearly the uh, economic analysis of arbitration uh, is what it is, and anyone is able to, 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 make, to make a calculation. If you have a $1 million claim, it doesn't make sense to arbitrate. Uh, the ICC or non-ICC, any institution, uh, because you're going to spend, uh, you're going to have a two years long arbitration, you're going to spend $200,000 minimum in equal costs, then you will get an award, uh, maybe giving you 70% of your claims, $700,000, $700, uh, and then perhaps you have to make a settlement, so you're happy if you recoup your cost. So arbitration ceases to be effective. It ceases to be effective essentially because it's too long, and duration of cases, duration means cost, because whatever is I mean, the idea that uh, cost and, 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 and duration are two separate questions is completely wrong. The longer an arbitration lasts and, 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 and the cost it is for, uh, for the party. So I felt that there was a need to change this. There was a need to change this uh, for the way the ICC administers cases, for the economic analysis of going to arbitration, and for a very common sense uh, uh, reasoning, which is that if you have, if you have, you parties should be able to get an award in a short time for cases which are not very complex, uh, uh, involving hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's that's what I at times define as being the lost promise of arbitration, uh, because arbitration uh, in, back in the 50s and the 60s, or even before World War II. Uh, what was it? It was, it was a, a quick, efficient way of resolving disputes. You would get in the world much more, in a much more speedy way than, 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 than now. So uh, that there was the need to go back to this. And I felt that guidance was not enough uh, because and, and the ICC had the experience of what is called, what was called the referee pre-arbitral of the ICC, the pre-arbitral referee, which was based on opt-in. It never worked. It was a fantastic tool. It never worked because it was opt-in. And once the parties are in a dispute, they, never, they don't agree on anything, right? So there, 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 there was the need for, for some mandatory uh, tool which would, which would uh, address what I see uh, as a nonsense. Nonsense being a claim of one or two million dollars in two years or two years and a half before three arbitrators, and at the end of the day, costing much more than what the party would be able to recover. Uh, so we took that move, and that was quite a, a, an innovative move at the time, because at the time there was no other institution uh, adopting a, a, a procedural device such as this on, on an up basis, which is to say on, on a mandatory basis. There, there were at the time uh, lots of uh, uh, skepticism, I think a quite a significant level of skepticism, mm -hmm. opposition as well. Uh, we have... Uh, Proceeded. It has turned out to be, I think, uh, a fantastic success. Uh, we have been uh, completely vindicated by, by what we have seen. I think now we have seen uh, about 100 awards made uh, under the ASPDAD rules, uh, almost all of them with very little exceptions made within the six months. And the quality of these awards is as good as that of any other award. They are scrutinized by the court with the same level of quality, even, even though in a shorter uh, time frame. So parties get exactly the same service, but it lasts six months instead of lasting two, two years or two years and a half. And, and the scale of fees is 10%, 20% uh, less. 
and the cost, the, the, the parties' representation costs uh, are uh, also uh, much, much uh, reduced because because of the time frame of the of the arbitration, which is which is reduced. So I think it has been a great success. Uh, my my only regret on this is I had proposed when we revised our, our uh, rules, uh, the new 2021 rules, I had proposed to increase the threshold to four or more. Uh, so and this community was what I mean. Many, many companies were in favor of that. The other one was skeptical. We, we decided to settle for an increase from two to three million. Uh, it's what it is. Uh, but I think that this is a tool which uh, which uh, will be more broadly used in the future. I'm sure that the ICC will want to, in the years to come, to consider further increases of the threshold because I, I think that this tool is uh, is, a, is a really meaningful and efficient and and, uh, and sensible answer to uh, what is the reasonable uh, criticism that that is made by business arbitration of that cost. Well, sure, and I mean, look, Alexi, look, we're just we're talking here. If you want to say I told you so right now, I mean, you can say it officially on the record. <laughs> uh. No one. And our friend Martin Kilgore well, was also extremely supportive, and and, and he saw uh, he saw the, uh, the potential of this. Well, that's fair enough. Uh, presiding the governing body at the time. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that you just mentioned in your answer there, um, Alexi, was uh, the new iteration of the ICC rules that's just come out. Um, I, I can't even begin to fathom or imagine um, what that process is like. Uh, amending those rules. Could you give us just a, a peek into that? I mean, what is the process like when when the one, the, the court decides to um, amend the rules, um, what sorts of things it, it considers and what that looks like to, um, and I guess what that process actually looks like to the extent you can speak about it? Yeah, the, the process has has evolved within the ICC system. Uh, you, 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 you perhaps will remember or not that when the, the adopted its uh, 2012 rules, it is a process that took almost two years. And the ICC in its history has had the habit of uh, amending its rules uh, 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 only every 10 or 15 years. Now, this has changed. Uh, this has changed because I think that the world of today requires institutions to be more reactive with the needs of the market. Uh, there is a tendency of uh, fast adaptation, which I think is a good one, which obliges institutions to uh, uh, to be able to, to to revise their rules in practice uh, more frequently than, than they did before. Uh, the evolution uh, within the ICC system uh, took the uh, had the effect uh, of changing a little bit the uh, interaction between the court and the ICC Commission. Uh, the practice was uh, or had been uh, prior to 2012 that the ICC Commission would, would in fact be the legislative body uh, deciding on changes, adopting the changes before before the changes were then adopted by the ICC Executive uh, which was not exactly what the rules provided for. Uh, I may have applied the rules according to their letter uh, when we amended the rules in 2017, uh, in the sense that the uh, uh, and, and the rules say that uh, 
uh, any amendment to rules is proposed by the court and then laid down for the commission and adopted by the ICC the board, which was what happened. Uh, the commission was consulted on the rules, but on a much more quicker fashion than, 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 than what had happened before, uh, which means that we, we have been essentially able to adopt the 2017 rules in, in a very short time frame. Uh, the project was launched in, uh, uh, in, in July of uh, 2016, uh, and the new rules entering into force on the 1st of, uh, if I remember well, March uh, of 2017. So very something completely unusual for, for the ICC. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but these 2017 amendments were limited to essentially two important changes, which were uh, the ability for the court to provide reasons for uh, channel decisions and the introduction of the ESLAB rules, which were a very, very important change. Uh, the 2021 amendment took uh, slightly longer because it's a more and uh, more technical i would say uh, and less political set of amendments but still there it took about a year uh, which which is uh, not even a year because we started this uh, we started this in july of 20 uh, yeah about a year uh, about a year it went uh, before the commission twice and then it was adopted by the board in uh, of uh, 2020 intended force on 1st of July, uh, 1st of January of 2021. Uh, so it was, it was, it was efficient, and, uh, and I, I think it's a good, good set of changes. Well, sure. Um, any of the, and I know that there are at least a handful. Um, any of the changes in particular that stuck out in your mind, or that you want to give any additional thoughts on? Well, there are a number of changes that go to uh, multi-party complex operations uh, joinder. There is a new device for joinders uh, personal preference. So we have uh, flexibilized a little bit the consolidation provision, even though personally I would have liked to uh, uh, make it even more flexible, but that, that's another discussion which we can have if you want. Uh, there are a number of changes that, that go to transparency, in particular the obligation of the parties to disclose the existence uh, an identity of, uh, of third-party funders, a number of changes that go to uh, uh, due process and the integrity of operations. For example, when uh, uh, there is an unconscionable arbitration agreement, uh, there are a number of changes that apply specifically to ISDS cases. Uh, so it's, I would say, the difference of the 2017 reform, it's a, it's a comprehensive set of, of, of changes which, which are, I would say, more technical than, than what was done in the, in 2017, which were really uh, profound, profound uh, political changes. All right. Do you have a release date for the next set of changes? <laughs> That's my script. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, so, um, and thanks for that. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's just really a, a fascinating process um, amending the rules and, and watching the evolution. Um, one of the things that and I, and I guess this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with expedited procedure um was that was a little bit of peering into the future um as we kind of wrap up um talking about uh the sec i guess in particular what changes or predictions do you have for the field of international arbitration over the next going into the future five years ten years any bold predictions that you have Well, I, I would say three things. I mean, first, the first goes to two or four things. I mean, expedited rules is something that will, I think that uh, there is need for, again, there is businesses need this. Businesses need, of course, if you have a, a 
half a billion dollar case involving uh, gas pricing. Everybody understands loans, complex, and, and the amount of space are huge. Uh, the, 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 the bread and butter commercial arbitration uh, involving uh, claim for damages, termination of contract, uh, agency uh, identification, uh, things like that. There is no reason why these uh, these claims should should uh, should take that long to resolve. So you you will see more of that. You will see the RCC, I hope, expanding the scope of the CPP. You will see other institutions adopting the same kind of uh, of device. I think another tendency is that you will see you will see more guidance. You will see more mandatory rules on other institutions. Uh, this is something that I think is uh, is in the uh, in, in the trend, uh, for example, in the 2021 rules, the ICC has uh, adopted the rule uh, uh, preventing parties in ISDS cases from appointing arbitrators having the same nationality as one of the parties. So that's a mandatory rule. The EPP has that provision allowing the court to uh, appoint uh, a single, a sole arbitrator even if the clause provides for three. Uh, we have introduced now a clause providing that uh, the court uh, may appoint all arbitrators uh, uh, by disregarding the arbitration agreement if the clause uh, uh, implies uh, a disbalance between the parties, a breach of the principle of equality, things like this. And you will see more of this. You will see you will see institutions uh, perhaps impinging more on uh, what is uh, considered to be uh, uh, the parties' uh, the parties' freedom of choice. Uh, another tendency is, uh, and that that that's important, is uh, concerns uh, uh, disclosure. So we will, I see, I think, uh, uh, see a world where uh, uh, there will be acceptance for uh, comprehensive disclosures on the part of arbitrators. Uh, and I think that you will see that at some point the IBA will realize that uh, their guidelines on conflicts are. Uh, a bit, a bit too conservative. Uh, the the three years uh, rule, for example, three years, three times rules for past appointments, I think, is no longer uh, adapted to the needs of today. There is, there is a need, and there is more and more understanding of that. That um, the information should be the table. There might be challenges. Uh, you must have uh, robust institutions to decide challenges and. Uh, and reject those that must be rejected. Uh, but if parties are prevented from making challenges because the information is not disclosed, that's something that is negative by 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 by, by in respect. Uh, another change that we will see is that of uh, council ethics. Uh, you remember that that debate about the uh, IBA guidelines of part representation, which is a set of rules which I like very much because not only because I happen to. To, uh, to have presided the IBA Arbitration Committee at the time, but I think it's a very good set of rules. Uh, and, and I think that, that, that the idea that uh, tribunals should exercise some, some sort of authority uh, over some aspects of, uh, uh, of, of council conduct is something that will, that will progress uh, in, in, in the future. And finally, something that is very, very dear to my heart, that is transparency. And, uh, uh, and that's perhaps something on which uh, I see that there is still uh, a lot of um, resistance, uh, in particular on the idea that awards should be made public, uh, not only in investment arbitration, but also in commercial arbitration. Uh, and I think it will take a lot of time. Take a lot of time, but um, if uh, 
take a date in uh, 10 or 15 years from now, I think we'll have made much, much, much progress on this. I hope so. Uh, I think that the idea that arbitration is, is secret, and this uh, kind of culture of embedded now at the moment is something that will slowly, I say slowly because it will be slow, but it will, it will slowly disappear. Sure. No. I, I, the, well, those first of all, that's a very good set of uh, predictions, and that'll be fun to see um, how quickly each of those comes to fruition. Um, the one follow-up that I would ask on that last point that you made is, um, how soon is it until uh, we're, we don't have arbitrators anymore? That we have robots or an AI <laughs> machine is sort of doing uh, what it is that we do day to day. I mean, are we safe for at least the next decade, or is that something that could be coming sooner than we think? Well, I, I think that the, the real change will not be this. Uh, I, I'd like to think that uh, arbitrating will, I mean, arbitrating has to be human activity. Otherwise, it's no longer arbitration. If you have a machine uh, issuing the award, you can call this arbitration to meet you. not really arbitration. Arbitration is, is about uh, men and women judging other men and women by human standards. It's, it's, it's an activity that involves uh, 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 that involves uh, essentially a moral judgment that is cast on, on a certain situation, and and that cannot be cast. Uh, moral judgment cannot be cast by a machine. Machines are not able and will not be able, that's my my, my, my view, uh, to uh, to have moral values uh, anytime soon, uh, or, or, or hopefully never. Now, what you will see, uh, I think, and, and that is the the, the, the more serious uh, evolution is is the eruption of, of artificial intelligence in a way uh, that will be, I think, uh, extremely interesting and disruptive. Not, not only uh, uh, artificial intelligence for the organization hearings, remote hearings, and all this. Of course, this is this is now uh, this is now reality. But 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 protective justice, I think, is something that will be. Uh, uh, that will become important. Protective justice, of course, uh, supposes uh, that data is available, and and that that is also connected to what we just said about about the culture of secrets. If you don't have the data, you can have no protective justice. Protective justice is uh, is based on the treatment of data vectors. Uh But I think that for some dispute, very uh, repetitive, which are uh, fairly simple, uh, you will have tools uh, allowing to treat data. When I say data, I mean past awards, past decisions by 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 arbitrators, in a way which will allow parties to have a fairly accurate prediction uh, of what the tribunal might decide. Uh, and if that's the case, of course, there will be lots of consequences because parties will. Uh, uh, have more reasons to try to mediate or settle, uh, there will be less reason to go to arbitration at all. Uh, but again, and that will be positive, but again, uh, that, that will not happen if we uh, still, if we maintain our, our culture of secrecy. If, uh, if thousands of awards, because what matters is not publishing three or four interesting world draft awards, what matters is the big data is. In certain fields, meritocracy, to have the entire uh, uh, the entire mass of thousands of awards to, to see to see tendencies, uh, and that will allow the emergence of of uh, of, of predictive justice as 
as much as it will allow arbitration to contribute to the formation of the world law, because because if you have that that critical mass of hundreds of thousands of worlds, then then uh, the the convergence of solutions in, in in a great mass of decision then might will be able to be to be treated as uh, as uh, the basis for for commercial usages. So, so uh, again, it comes back to that question, which I see as a fundamental one for the future of arbitration, which is which is uh, which is transparency and notification rewards. Sure. No, I think I think that's interesting, and that's a question I, I frankly ask almost all my guests, and it's something that's on my mind a lot. Maybe I, I saw the movie I Robot too recently, or or just thinking about the the, the artificial intelligence uh, coming for us. Um, okay. Well, in any case, uh, I think we can leave uh, the world of arbitration. Uh, there for just a moment, and we'll shift focus just a little bit, Alexi. Um, what what are you reading now? What kind of books are are in your library, or are you are you um, sort of enjoying at the moment? Book on the on the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Oh wow, interesting. Chinese Cultural Revolution, a very interesting one from uh, Yang Jincheng. Uh, just came out. Uh, um, I'm I'm interested in China and the history of China, so that's that's a good book. A good book. I can recommend it to you. Well, sure. Um, you know, listeners of the show will know, but I don't know if you do. I spent a decent amount of time in China. I actually went to law school for a bit in China. So um, so that, that, that would be interesting. Uh, I assume you're reading in English or French, maybe. In English. In English. <laughs> uh, He's older. I mean, there was, there was a previous book from him, which was very interesting as well, called Tomstone. Sure. And that's about the great, the great war in China in the years 50s. And now this is uh, the newest one on the Cultural Revolution. Well, great. We'll have to um, get that, that book title for the show notes. And so the listeners can uh, can check it out if they're interested in Chinese history. I mean, the Cultural Revolution uh, being such a big, important test touchstone there. Um, very interesting. Um, how about music? What kind of music do you enjoy when you're not uh, reading about Chinese history and or working on international arbitration related things? While, while I'm reading, <laughs> working. <laughs> sure. Uh, I like classical music. I like Mozart a lot. Mozart, okay. My favorite is Don Giovanni. Don Giovanni, okay. But the Requiem, the Requiem seems a bit uh, sinister, but the Requiem is perhaps the most beautiful piece of music about him. Well, sure. And do you have, uh, are you a musician yourself? Do you play any instruments or sing or anything like that? Fortunately, not. No, I'm a very bad singer, so I'm not. <laughs> I would have loved to be a musician, but, but no, I'm not. Well, that, that's this, a good, safe answer, because if you had said yes, I would say, oh, well, you know, sing us a tune. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, one of the things that has been a little bit of, a, of an oddity in this times that we find ourselves in, especially the last year, has been this phenomenon of working from home. Um, I'm sure that you probably had some of that over the past year, and maybe you still are doing that to some extent. How have you found the elements of working from home um, in your own life? And um, how do you sort of balance or keep from work being your entire um, existence? Well, you know, that's a good living 10 minutes uh, walk, walking distance from, uh, from the ICC where I'm in my office. So, I go to the office every day because I like to work. It's my and um, I buy my newspapers and um, so I've been uh, even even during confinement. Last year I was in the countryside for uh, for the two months, which was a strict confinement for, for two months. So I, I was in the countryside in Normandy, 
Uh, but since then, I've been in office every day. Okay. And and so you mentioned the, the countryside, and maybe this, this question sort of goes to it. Um, whether you're working from home or not, one of the things that's essential for having a long and, and staying sort of legal career is balancing the physical and mental health aspects of... Um, of work-life balance. Um, how do, what are some of the things that you do to sort of maintain those things in your own life? I'm not sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I have found uh, is... That, that's the problem. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, these, uh, uh, these new technologies, uh, they give you a lot of liberty in a way, but it's... Uh, uh, you end up working all the time. So it's great, you know, I go, uh, I'm going to work, I, I can work from anywhere, from my uh, countryside home, from uh, anywhere I go, uh, but you end up opening your computer at any time, day and night. That's bad. Yeah, you know, I, I find it to be a good day where I have a chance to maybe take a 30 to 40 minute walk before the sun goes down to just try to stretch the legs and um, not look at a screen for a bit. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, listen, and we're we're winding down here, um, Alexi. And, and uh, one thing that I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, or let's say your approach, as I'm sure happens from time to time, at a conference or something similar, by a student or or somebody that's looking to to break into the the world of international arbitration, and they say to you, um, you know, Mr. Moore, you know, I want to have a career similar to yours, or I'd like to be successful in this field. How do I do that? Um, what type of advice uh, would you impart to them? Well, you know, I, in answer to this, I, I, would, I would say that I find those is to be much more brilliant than, than, than I was uh, when, when I was their age. I'm sure that uh, they know much more there. They know more languages. They've traveled more than I did at their age. Uh, they're absolutely brilliant. Those, are, those I see, and my my, my, my daughter is studying arbitration as well. Uh, at the moment, she's at Strasbourg. One of my daughters, uh, and I, I'm really amazed and impressed by uh, by the uh, intelligence and the openness uh, of of these of these young students. So I, I would say that I don't feel that I have many many advice to to give them. Well, sure. And I mean, I think one of the common themes we've seen across all these conversations we've had here on the show is that the paths can be so different and you can come from, you know, almost any specific starting point And it's your life experience to sort of at some point, the international arbitration door sort of cracks, a, a, you know, an opportunity and then you kind of just walk in and that's um, there's, there's no set formula, so to speak, to uh, to make it in this field, I guess. No, just just seize the opportunities. That's the only thing. Seize your opportunities. No, not really. no, seize your opportunities when they come. No, I think that that's um, that that's a good one. Um, what about any guiding forces or mentors or anything like that that really had an impact on you in shaping your career? Well, the the only name I can I, can, I mean I I had quite a close relationship with uh, with Serge Zaev at the time uh, to whom. I because he's, uh, he's someone from whom I, I, I learned a lot. And, uh, the first, the first person who encouraged me to uh, actively engage to arbitration was uh, 
the Italian RCC Corp member at the time uh, was uh, name was uh, Renzo Moreira. And uh, I happened to know him. We, we had some dealings together. And at some point, he told me, you should you should do arbitration. You would be very good. You should focus on that, specialize in that. I said, are you sure? Why? Yeah, do it. And, and I did it. So he's the one who encouraged me first. Well, sure. Yeah. No, and I think we all have those um, sort of mentors and guiding forces. I know I've had certainly a, a number that sort of just guide you, if even just a little bit, um, in one direction or another. That, that's important. Um, one of the final questions I have before we sort of head to the closing notes would be, we've seen a, a pretty steady rise in both gender and ethnic diversity over the past few years in international dispute resolution. What sort of things do you think will continue to either one, be a challenge or two, aid in that endeavor and sort of increasing diversity in the field? Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that that's still. I mean, we 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 at the ICC have done have done a lot, and I'm very proud of what we've done, in particular in terms of gender diversity. But it's it's only only one facet of, of diversity, of course. Now, when when you look at statistics, in particular, our statistics, uh, the population of our treasures, I think it's still uh, slightly less than seventy percent uh, of arbitrators originating from Western Europe, and North America. Uh, and that's, of course, not, not reflective at all of the reality of arbitration today. So institutions and the ICC in particular need to make a very, very significant effort, not only to increase the proportion of women in our uh, tribunals, because we have now achieved gender parity in the court, which is good, but the court is the court. Uh, we need to look at uh, the population of uh, 1,600 plus uh, uh, ICC arbitrators that are sitting in cases. Uh, but we need we need to make a very very big effort in uh, in allowing uh, arbitration communities to rise in particular in Africa. Africa is a continent in which uh, we need to make that effort. We, it's still too difficult uh, to find arbitrators in uh, in Africa, but Asia as well. These are uh, Latin America communities that are uh, underrepresented in the in, in, in the population of ICC arbitrators. Uh, so we, we we need to make a very very significant effort that's well sure and i think that that's well said and i think that anyone working in uh the diversity space um across the globe recognizes some of those truths and um, as um, less involved jurisdictions have been involved um they will continue to sort of re be reached out to and engaged in that process um alexi one of the the last two things that i have here for you today are first are there any people that you want to acknowledge, say hello to, give a shout out to before we wrap up here today? Well, again, all those uh, with whom I had the privilege of working with at the ICC. It's been really, as I said, um, uh, an honor for me and I learned a lot from them. Uh, they've assisted me uh, day after day. Uh, these people are incredibly, incredibly devoted to the to, to the court. They have an incredible amount of enthusiasm uh, from the top. Uh, Alex Pesas, uh, the leadership of uh, of the court, uh, Anna Seremawa, uh, Zira Filipek, uh, Ashley, and all the council. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed every day working with them. Sure. And all the court. Of course, of course, they want to. With them in particular. 
<laughs> well, sure. Um, and we will, uh, if they, to the extent they're on LinkedIn, we'll tag them, but we'll certainly mention uh, them in the show notes as well. So, um, I, unfortunately, Alexi, this is uh, we're, we're running towards the end of our time together. Um, we thank you so much for coming by the studio, and um, we, you know, we look forward to uh, hearing and seeing what you'll be doing next. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, Alexi, do you want to sign us off? I am Alexi. If you are listening to Tales of the Tribune. Woo! What an episode! I sometimes feel like a bit of a broken record when I mention how quickly the time goes by, but when you've got these sort of high-tempo, high-level conversations, you have so much to cover, it is very easy to look up and 45 minutes or an hour has gone by. In any case, as you heard, Alexi is simply a wealth of knowledge on international arbitration, the current trends, and of course, ICC context and history. It may be the end of his tenure, but I have no doubt that he has much more to do as he transitions. So that was our conversation for this week and also the official start of season three. We have some exciting episodes forthcoming over the next few weeks, and we look forward to sharing them with you. We are finalizing the guests for season three. So if you have any recommendations, do drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com, where you can also leave any comments or feedback. On that note, don't forget to leave us a review or follow us on LinkedIn. And of course, share with a friend or colleague you think might be interested. The show is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. And research assistants for Disputes Digest are Matthew Cothran and Ramatulahi Jalo. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Tales of the Tribunal. <laughs>